my name is Pastor Joel Slater. I'm one of the, the staff pastors here. And again, it's just a joy to share God's word with you today. And uh, we have been in a series for several weeks. And so if you've been here for a few weeks, maybe you've forgotten, maybe you missed a week. Uh, but uh, maybe you've been with us. And so we're just going to review. In fact, I think it's time um, in the seven-week series, kind of midpoint. It's kind of hard because you can't divide seven equally. Um, but we're going, to, we're going to try. And I thought it would be good to take a midterm exam. All right? How do you feel about that? So I gave away the first answer in the first, uh, so I've learned and everything. But we're just going to test you a little bit today. Oh, you gave away the answer. I was gonna, my first question, maybe this will build your confidence. It's like, what's the, what's, the, what's the name of our series that we're in so far? Okay, you're brilliant. All right, hopefully that, that kind of built up your confidence for those of you who panic when you hear about tests and exams. So we're in focus, and we're in the series of focus, and what did we learn that for, so that we're all on the same page when it comes to what does the word focus mean? What does focus mean in terms of this series? Do you remember? Do you remember what it means? Every letter represents a word. What did we say it was? Somebody got in the first service. Follow, follow one course until successful. Okay. All right. You got it. You know, here you go. Here you go. The first one was a little too easy. Uh, so I'm not going to carry you on this. All right. And we had a verse. We had a verse that, that is the foundation for this whole series. It's the motivation for this series. We believe it's the, it's the lens in which we see, understand the book of John, which we're looking at, more clearly. And it's this verse. Perhaps, has anybody, has anybody memorized this verse? No. No, you haven't. That's okay. I would encourage you to do so. But it's found in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And it's this verse. This is the frame, the verse that we see that tells us which course to follow. It is this. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of disciples. In other words, there are a lot of things that Jesus did that are not recorded in this book. That doesn't take away from them. That doesn't minimize them. At the end of the day, you just can't put everything in. But John said that there, there, these, Jesus performed many different signs in the presence of disciples. So there were eyewitnesses to those events, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written. In other words, the signs that we're talking about in this series, there's seven of them. These signs were written that you may believe that there's a response to this, that you will look at the evidence and that you may believe, not that Jesus is a good man, not that Jesus was a, necessarily a prophet in and of itself, not that he was an inspired leader, he wasn't another Nelson Mandela, he wasn't another Gandhi, he wasn't another you name whoever inspires you, but that he was someone very specific, he is the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God himself, and that by believing, by believing this, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, but by believing this, that you would have life in his name. This is the reason why we're, we're looking at the book of John, and this is why John wrote his gospel. And the main point of our series, if you were to say, if you were to tell someone to invite someone, and we hope you do, because I see chairs open, and there are people that need to be here. There's someone that needs to be here that only you could reach, that only you could invite. So I'm going to challenge you to do that. And when you do, you're going to, hey, we're in this series focus. We're looking at evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and at the end of the day, when they say, well, tell me more about this series. What's this series about? You can say, well, it's because we're looking at this series focus, the book of John, because thanks to Jesus, our faith is not based solely on our feelings, but ultimately by focusing on the facts. 
Because there are people that are not moved by emotion. There are people that are not moved by the touchy-feely. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. We're all different. But at the end of the day, what's this series about? It's that we, that thanks to Jesus, because of what Jesus did and what's recorded, our faith is not based on feelings, because those come and go. Sometimes you feel close to God, sometimes you feel far away from God. Sometimes you believe God in, in, in everything, and some days you doubt everything. But that's not the point. Those feelings come and go with the tides, but the fact is that your faith is not based on those feelings, but on the facts. Now, why would I give you an exam? Why would I pull that on you? For some of you, your blood pressure just went through the roof. Relax, relax. But why would I give you an exam? What's the point of an exam? I mean, think about it. Wouldn't it be a lot easier when it came to education? Wouldn't it just be easier for everyone, for teachers? I've been a teacher. I've gra- I can't believe I've done it to myself where I've, 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 I've given homework and I've given papers. I had 50 students and I assigned a 10-page paper for that class alone. What was I thinking? <laughs> Terrible. So much work. Wouldn't it just be easier if we just uh, put in the time, we're exposed to the information, and just check the box and acknowledge, I was there, I went through it, and that should settle it. It would be easier, wouldn't it? But the question is, would we have actually learned anything? Now back home, where I come from, I found out the governor of our state or our province just issued a law that declared that students no longer have to prove proficiency in reading, writing, and arithmetic in order to matriculate. They no longer have to prove they can read or write or do arithmetic at a, any kind of functional level in order to show that they've finished their, their education. And I'll bet you every student in that state is just rejoicing and, oh, this is fantastic. But I'm here to say, as someone with a little bit more life experience, yeah, in a few years when they get down the road and they, they apply for that job or they're given that assignment in their work or, or you know, have to manage their own finances or read a contract, how's that going to work for them? It seems like a good eye now, but at the end of the day, is that really going to count? Is that really going to matter, or is it going to have a negative effect? And when we're young, though, the problem is we don't care, do we? When we're young, we don't care. When, when we're young, we don't care about the long-term benefits of an education. We don't care that we have to learn this stuff. We basically, honestly, if, you, if I got into your mind and really we were having a heart-to-heart, we would say when we were young, we would only care about two questions. One is, what do I get? And how do I get it? Right? What's in it for me? How do I get it? What do I get? Why do I need to take this class? Why do I need to study this subject? Why do I need to go to school? Why do I need to take this test? What do I get out of it? And how do I get it? And I'll tell you, these are the same questions that my five-year-old son asks me all the time. You know, and I, we ask him to do his homework. He, he has some, some learning disabilities that are, we're, we're trying to work through. And so we're given some work that are going to help him. We just came out of an assessment last, this last week and saying that he is just moved so far forward thanks to this material. But he doesn't care. He doesn't care about doing the work. He doesn't care about his future. He just cares about getting a sticker to put on his chart. And he gets into the, the treasure chest. That's all he cares about every single day. And you know, when you're five, that's fine. When you're 35, not, not you know, the treasure chest doesn't, <laughs> come on, you know, the treasure chest doesn't kind of do it for you anymore. But when it comes with, to our relationship with God, if you're new to faith or maybe you've just come back to faith, but, uh, maybe you're early in your faith journey, you know, we're all honest, we all ask those same two questions of God. What do I get, God, and how do I get it? What can you give me today, God, and what do I got to do to get you to give it to me? And you know, that's fine 
and that's understandable. But if people, anybody who's in a relationship of any long term, and if you've grabbed, gathered any life maturity at all, we realize that there has to be more to life than just basing it on what we get out of it, right? I mean, think about it. This is why some of your relationships or the relationships you, you know, it may be your brothers, it may be your, your mothers, maybe your broken family, but you realize there are, it's just after a while, a healthy relationship cannot function if it, all it's based on is what you get from the other person. If you always are basing your happiness on what you get from that person, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. I remember when my wife and I first uh, got together, and we were, we were dreaming about a life together and everything, and I made a bunch of promises. I was like, I was like oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I had no idea what I was talking about. And my wife, you know, she's, you know, she's here and everything, and honestly, I mean, she believed me. She believed I, I wasn't lying. I believed I would do it. But at the end of the day, what, what I was really thinking in my immaturity was, if I do this, I'll get something out of it. Huh. That doesn't always work. And that's the problem with so many relationships. You're only in it to get something out of it. But the problem is, you know, it's impossible to have an authentic relationship with someone from whom you're always trying to get something. You know what it likes to feel used, don't you? You know what it's like to have been used and abused. You have shelled out. You've given them that next chance. You've done it again. You've gone the extra mile or the extra kilometer. And, you know, it's just, like, just over and over again. And it never seems to come back. That can't be a relationship. And John's gospel is tackling this problem by pointing out a very fundamental thing. And it's this, that God gave us everything we needed and everything he wanted to give us all at once because he gave us himself. The idea that we're, we're hanging on by, by a thin thread with God and he gives us little tidbits here and there. And if you're good, I'll give you a treat. And if you work hard and prove yourself, I'll give you another treat. And if you just prove yourself, then I'll just give you a little bit and a little bit of it. He goes, at the end of the day, that's not a relationship. That's not the relationship that he wanted. And John is saying, at the end of the day, God gave us everything we needed and everything we could have ever wanted in that he wanted to give us. He wants to give us everything. The Bible says he emptied himself completely and gave us himself. And that alone should change our perception of everything. Of everything. Your, your current circumstances, this is all it is. This is all I have. This is all I'm ever going to get. It's never going to get better. The fact that Jesus has given himself everything, he's given all of himself to you, should change that this is not all there is. That your happiness and your life is not based on what you have now or what you can get in this life, but that there is hope for the future. Again, your Christological lens should change how you see end times because of what Jesus has already made available to you. This fact alone should change our focus. See, the Gospel of John is organized in a very particular way. He tells us particular events. He doesn't tell us everything, but he gave us certain events. And in these events, Jesus performed miracles, or something he called signs. And these signs were evidence. These were not just good deeds. These were not just parlor tricks, magic tricks. These were signs. This was evidence of who he was. He did not come to simply do good things, but he came to show us who he is. That's why John is called the book of the seven signs. He didn't want us to just, we didn't, John didn't want us to just know what he did and has, again, as a final exam, just go through the material and, and, and if you ever got a pop quiz, well, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? There were plenty of people that know what Jesus did, but it didn't change how they saw him as he is. And today, you get a chance to prepare for another exam. 
We looked at, in the last several weeks, we've already looked at several of these signs. Number Week one, we looked at how he changed water into wine. We saw how he took a very mundane thing and he turned it into something extraordinary. We saw Mary, who was kind of the hero in the story, that she, didn't, she really didn't worry about it. She didn't worry about the details. She simply brought the situation to Jesus. And even though he rebuffed her and said, Mom, I didn't come to, to fix wine. I came to fix the world. She goes, that's nice, son. I'll trust you and however you want to deal with it. But I just know you're so good, you can do this too. Um, she's not going to worry about it. She knew who her son was. She knew who her son was. And it changed her perspective on things. I'm not going to worry about it. We saw another sign where, uh, where Jesus healed the official's child. A man who, who as I kind of looked at that story, and I won't unpack it, but I really marveled that he had everything. He had wealth. He had privilege. He had, he had, a, he had a worldview that he was convinced he knew what, what, could, what to expect. But when his child was in dire need, he threw all that away, and he threw his hope on Jesus. And Jesus proved that he could do something, not just where you are, but further down the road. That he's not limited by distance, he's not limited by circumstances, and it changed that, that person's life. And then we saw last week, Pastor Aaron talked about the healing of a paralytic, a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. Some of us can't handle a problem for 38 minutes. And we saw Jesus come and do something extraordinary. And yet we see that in all these things, Despite what he did, people still missed the point of why he did it. And so we want to look at another sign. If that's not enough for you, let's look at the fourth sign in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, this is a very full chapter, and we're going to look at the fourth sign. And I would encourage you uh, to make this part of your daily 20 reading. It's a power-packed chapter. It's a long chapter. We're going to see if we can get through it. But this fourth sign is, is probably the most famous sign. In fact, it's so famous, this, this sign, the feeding of the 5,000, is in every single gospel. It's in Matthew, it's listed in Mark, Luke, as well as John. So when John says many diff- there were many miracles that Jesus did, but they're not, not all written, for some reason, he chose to repeat a miracle already written in the other three gospels. So what does that tell you? It tells you it's important, that there's a significance to this. And I'm telling you that today, um, as I was familiar with this story, I was tempted to say today's lesson is, is merely that we can't forget how much the Lord can do with the little things that are yielded to him. And I've got to tell you, have you ever seen an accident far off and were able to maneuver it? And then kind of like, wow, what if I hadn't made a course correction? I could have really suffered. And I kind of feel like th- that with this story. I was like, yeah, I could have done that. But at the end of the day, I would have missed the point. I would have lost my focus. The focus that John wants because it's not on the event, it's on the one making the event happen. And so as I focused on this passage and I saw the bigger picture, I discovered that, that this, this miracle, the feeding of 5,000, has less to do with what you and I should do or what God can do with the little that we have, although that is important. It has much more to do with who Jesus is and how that should change everything. So we see this. Start with me in verse 1. It says, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. Now remember, John is, not, John is talking to a group of people that have no framework of where this location is. But as Pastor Dylan pointed out, he's given you so much information that you cannot doubt that the story took place. That you can pinpoint where exactly it is. So whether you're a Jew familiar with the area of Galilee and you called it the Sea of Galilee, or you're a Gentile reading this from far off and far away, and I have no idea where this is, oh, Wait a minute, the Sea of Tiberias. Oh, I've heard of that place. It's very important. Because we've come to South Africa, we've learned that there are cities that were traditionally called one thing, but now, uh, as culture changes, it's been changed to a different name. 
and I wouldn't know that name. I remember it being called this, and now it's that. And so over time, John apparently wants to ensure that you know where this took place so that you would know it did take place. So he crosses over to the far shore on the north side of this lake, and a great crowd of people followed, not because they believed he was Messiah, not because they are full of faith, not because they have embraced who he is, simply though because they saw the signs he had performed from healing the sick. Word travels fast. They have not embraced him for who he is. They simply are following him for what he has done. Some were just fascinated with the miracles. I mean, anytime you hear something supernatural, of course, it draws your attention. My five-year-old son loves the weather here because he's enamored with the, the spectacular natural events, like the lightning. He was like the lightning storm a couple days ago. He wanted everyone to get out their phones and open up Google and open up pictures of lightning. And he couldn't get enough of the different forms of lightning because that's pretty cool, right? But these people were like, I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in the natural. I'm looking for the supernatural. There are others that needed a miraculous healing for themselves. I mean, if you have a sick child and nobody else can help you, you're going to start looking for going from the ordinary ways of doing things to the extraordinary things of doing things, aren't you? Because you're desperate. And there were people in that predicament. But then overall, honestly, their reasons were misguided and pretty much superficial. It was asking that question, what do I get and how do I get it? And they figured, I want something and maybe I can get it from Jesus. And so maybe that's why Jesus did what he did. He does this, he tells us a story. Verse 3, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples and the Jewish Passover festival was near. Now, as I look at this, I'm like, I'm not really sure why people who are not Jews would care what festival is going on. But I seem to think that based on all this evidence, and you have to slow down and not think that you know the story, but really look at what the author is telling us in the story, the evidence, he goes up on a mountainside, he sits down, it's near the Passover, and this group of people are starting to put two and two together and say, wait a minute, we've seen this before, or at least we've heard of this before, and they start thinking that this guy is beginning to act like our hero, Moses. Moses went up on a mountain. Moses uh, brought us the Ten Commandments. He talked with God. Moses fed us in the wilderness. We were hungry and we were starving. And he made food literally fall from the sky. Bread in the morning, quail at night, give us food, bread, give us meat, give us water from a rock. Hey, one-stop shop. Get it all in one sitting. And, Jesus, and John is saying, yeah, you're, you're on the right track. He is like Moses, but in fact, he's actually a better Moses, because think about what Moses really did. Moses led his people after, after, out of captivity. These were people that lived in an occupied territory. These were people that not only were living under an oppressive regime, an occupational regime right then, but their history was one kingdom after another, conquering them, enslaving them. Then they were delivered, conquering them, enslaving them, and then they'd be delivered. And that was their history over and over and over and over and over. And they are crying out for a deliverer. And suddenly, what do we get? I want, to, what do I want? I want deliverance. How do I get it? This guy looks pretty promising. He's the new Moses. And this is, they're connecting the dots. Because they had a reason. They're not reading into the text. They read the text. And the text in Deuteronomy, way back when, said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses talking. He's going to be a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to him. Now, 
They like the first part, but we're going to see that they kind of skip the, the other part. They're not listening to him. But they saw Jesus as the embodiment of deliverance from their enemies. That's what they wanted, and they figured they had a way to get it. But this case, this is but the case is Jesus wasn't interested in doing a bunch of miracles for the miracle's sake. I mean, Jesus could. He sees these people. We've got a problem here. And he could have called manna from heaven. He could, he could have done the miracle. He could have recreated it, but he didn't. And the reason is we're told in the text that he wanted to test his disciples. He wanted to see, you've seen a couple of miracles already. Have you learned the lessons yet? Or have you just let these events wash over you and wa walk past you? But have they changed you? And so it's there in verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, he picked Philip, he picked a particular disciple and said, Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? See, this is, some people would say, well, this, this is about getting people involved and every one of us should get involved in helping others. And that's a great principle. In fact, the other gospels kind of make a point. They say, you know, when they say we have this problem, Jesus says, well, you give them something to eat. You get involved. But it's more than just mobilizing and multiplying volunteers and contributions. It says Jesus picked this guy, um, Philip, because if you, re if you remember the information that was given, Philip was from that area. Philip was, was in the local area. He knew the grocery stores. He knew the restaurants. He knew the caterers. And if anyone would know a solution to the problem, Philip would know it. But interestingly... That's, Jesus isn't interested in that. He's not interested in just leveraging, leveraging Philip's uh, practical knowledge of the area and the assets. But he says, he's saying this to test him. Jesus is saying this to test him because he himself already knew what he was intending to do. The test was not about information. The test was about identity. And Philip answered, well, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for everyone to even have a bite. Notice that when Philip is faced with the, the problem, he demonstrates he has impressive knowledge. Many of us know a lot about Jesus. You could, you could win a trivia test with what you know about Jesus. But at the end of the day, that knowledge had no power to change the situation. Hey, I know what is there, and th there's no answer. There's no answer. Wouldn't it have been great if Philip had responded and said something like this, Lord, I've seen you turn water into wine. I've watched you heal the royal official's son from a distance. I saw you heal that man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. I've watched you perform dozens of other miracles that haven't been recorded in this book. You know what? I'm convinced. I've seen enough. This, not a problem. Surely you can provide bread for this hungry multitude. You look like Moses. You're a better Moses. If anyone can do it, you can. I wish I could say that Philip said that, but we see that it's, it's not. And I wish I could say that I would have responded the same way, right? Sometimes we judge these characters in the Bible. Oh, what an idiot. What a fool. They should have, I can't believe this. But come on, aren't we the same way? I mean, I would have responded just like Philip did to the problem. A problem is presented, you start calculating, but we calculate without Christ. We do the numbers, we run the numbers without considering the Lord's power. You know, you're sitting in a location that honestly, considering if we looked at it, the, the practical, we shouldn't be sitting in this building, should we, Pastor Aaron? We shouldn't be in this building. We shouldn't have been in this building literally months after we decided to find a building, right? Let alone renovate a building. This is not possible in our own ability. But with God, all things are possible, aren't they? 
But when we, when we lose sight of that, when we think that, hey, you know, this is just, this is an exchange relationship, God. I give and you give. But sometimes I'm giving, but you're not giving back and everything. Eh, this isn't working. And you start to pull away and we begin to reveal that we're not in this relationship for what God has promised to give and already give. But we're in it to get, aren't we? Jesus was showing Philip and disciples not an opportunity to mobilize and, and make the world better by participating. But he was showing us our woeful inadequacy to meet the need, but also his all-sufficiency to meet the need. Philip, this isn't about you. This is all about me. But maybe you don't identify with the number cruncher. Maybe numbers are not your concern, but maybe you're more like a guy named Andrew. Because he's mentioned in the story too. And it says, another disciple, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and said, well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. It's something. But how far will they go among so many? See, Andrew, I, I like Andrew because Andrew was a, was a connector. You know, Andrew really should get more credit than he does. Because without Andrew, you would never meet Simon Peter. But Simon Peter kind of overshadows Andrew. But Andrew was the guy that went out and got somebody. Andrew was the guy like, I don't know, I don't know what to do, but I may know someone who does. And so let me bring that person in. And so he, he heard the need, and he probably fanned out, and he finally found this little boy. And maybe he thought, well, at least it's something. But even the, the, but even the description, the detail of barley loaves and small fish is telling you this was, this was not anywhere close. This was the dregs. This was like literally a poor man's lunch. This was nothing. This wasn't going to go anywhere. And what Andrew's question and statement really makes it really accentuates the obvious inadequacy. How in the world? How in the world? I'm doing the numbers. Even if we have something, it's not going to do anything. But that doesn't bother Jesus, does it? He says there in verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of room in the grass. And they sat down, about 5,000 men. And that's an interesting detail we'll talk about in a minute. You know, when Philip came and he, he literally gave a number, he gave, it, it would take, it would take a, a month's wages to pay for all this. When he did that, notice that Jesus didn't go, well, maybe we should just take up a collection and see how far we can get with that. When Andrew offered his apology and said, well, it's not much, but what, and, and really, what can this do for so many people? Notice that Jesus didn't say, well, you know what, I'll bet if you just look harder, you'll find some more. You notice that? Jesus wasn't limited any, in any way at all. And he's not limited today by the fact that we don't have enough money or time or talent to get the gospel to the whole world. He's not worried about you. He wants you to focus on him. So Jesus took what they had. He didn't bat an eye. And it says he took the loaves, he gave thanks, and he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. I don't know about you, but some of us have big appetites. I've got a 14-year-old son, and my wife goes, he eats all the time. And after you've hiked all day, and you've been out in the hot sun, the last thing you want to do is, you know, you get a little nibble in your mouth. You want it all. And that's, that could put on a lot of pressure. But it said they got as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. I know some of us want to know how that happened. How did this multiplication happen? You know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of different speculation. Some people say that maybe, uh, maybe they... You know, maybe, maybe, maybe something happened and inspired them to share. Like, oh, well, this little boy, and they, you know, I'm not going to be showing up by this kid. Okay, I was hiding this, but maybe I'll, okay. You know, and, it, and it just began to ripple effect, and we all shared what we had in common. I wish I, wish I could say that, but, but honestly, Andrew was walking around anyway, and he would have found those people, wouldn't he? 
If he was willing to kind of maybe cajole, bully, or drag a kid and say, give up your lunch, I'm sure he would have done that with an adult. We don't see that happening. And maybe some people say, well, maybe it was a miracle of they were so satisfied with Jesus' teaching, just the way you're satisfied with this message, that you're not thinking about lunch, you're not thinking about those donuts, you're just thinking about the word. Come on, I know you better than that. In fact, a little girl was, would offer that same solution. And she goes, yeah, but then what did they put in those 12 baskets? Because the story says they had so much left over, it went to the baskets. I'll tell you, teaching doesn't fill tummies. And so that doesn't support the evidence either. Something happened. And whatever the explanation, at the end of the day, it was proven that it came not from the ingenuity and cooperation of the people, but it came from the very hand of God. But whatever the explanation, we notice that Jesus' action had an effect on the crowd. It said, after, verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet. This is the one that Deuteronomy was talking about. This is the one we've been waiting for. This guy is putting up the goods. This guy is supplying for our need. This guy is the one we've been waiting for. Wonder what else we can get from him. And this is a remarkable statement. Correct conclusion. You came up with the right answer, but, you, they, but they demonstrate that they have an incredibly terrible application for it. They were right this was the better Moses. They were right this was the prophet they had been waiting for. But however, they weren't ready to follow him as Messiah. This is the prophet. This is the leader. This is the champion. But, but these signs have been written so that you may know that he is the Messiah. His job description is very limited. He is not a good man. He is not a miracle worker only. He is Messiah. He is the Son of God. They didn't want to follow him. They wanted to use him. They wanted God to work for them according to their program and their schedule. And before we judge them too deeply, can I just be honest, I see myself in them. Because have you ever thought this thought? Maybe you've said this in your mind, if not out loud. Maybe you know someone who is saying this in one way, shape, or another. You said, you know what? I gave up on faith. I grew up in the church and I wasn't getting anything out of it. I served faithfully and I didn't get anything out of it. I, I used to give, but I wasn't getting anything out of it. I used to go and I used to sit in the front pew or the front chair. I used to be involved. I used to pour out my heart, but I wasn't getting anything out of it. And so I gave up on it. And the point is that Jesus is saying, as long as you focus on what you can get out of it, you will never understand it. As long as you think Jesus is simply someone you come to to get an unlimited supply of something, you don't know who Jesus is. As long as you simply approach Jesus in that way, you will never truly understand Jesus. Have you ever been so angry with God because he didn't give you what you asked for? I know I have. Some people don't feel like you have permission to do that. But I remember there have been times where I faced the, the truth that I was so angry with God. God, you didn't do what I thought you would do. I took on that responsibility. I surrendered that, that opportunity. I, I, I did what you told me to do. I did it when no one else did. I was, I was the good boy. I said no when everyone else was saying yes. Don't I get something? Why don't you do this? Why didn't you do this now? Why didn't you do it then? Have you ever felt or said anything like that? And these people are the same way. When these people sat beside that Sea of Galilee and they saw a miracle in their midst, they said, here's the one who's going to take care of all our needs. Here's the one that we, where we don't have to worry about eating ever again. 
I know, you know, in, in, in our history, we've had leaders that have made those promises. In fact, people have said, oh, now I don't have to worry about anything because he's going to take care of it all. We're looking for that kind of person. But our Lord, Jesus didn't consent to that. In fact, it says in the text, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. He said, no, 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 that's not my agenda, that's not my schedule, that's not my program. And so rather than could be involved in that, in fact, he didn't want to be involved with it and he didn't want his disciples to be involved with it. Remember the number 5,000? That's not just meant to wow you, that's meant to show you that there was a potential of an insurrection, a revolution in the midst. Think about it, 5,000 men was the number of a Roman legion. That's a fighting force. And to start at the top at the northern end, he could have worked his way down to the places, Capernaum and, and to Cana where other miracles had taken place, where his name was known, where his name was getting around, his miracles were being demonstrated. He could have picked up more followers there. He would have traveled down to Jerusalem for the Passover because that's what you do. He had to go and he would have gathered enough followers to the point he could have gathered a sizable army and they could have taken the city. In fact, you read further down, he does enter the city and they do celebrate and they do wave their palm branches as a point of nationalism, saying, here's the one, here he goes, here it comes, it's going to happen, revolution, reward is going to happen. And Jesus knew this was what they were looking for. Jesus knew this is what they wanted and he said, not now, not now. And it wasn't enough. They were not to be deterred. You see, you read the rest of the story. Skip over a few verses down to verse 25. Jesus has gone to the other side of the lake. He's performed another miracle that they don't know about. So they're not interested in that. But they follow him to the other side of the lake. And they bring up, when they cross paths with him, it says in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? What are you bumping into you here? And Jesus knows exactly what they're after. He shakes his head. He goes right to the heart of the matter. Do you, you know people that, that want something from you? They never come out and tell you, do they? They kind of go around the issue. They drop hints. They hope that you catch on. They hope that it's your idea to give them something because they don't want to be seen as the one asking. And here they are doing that, but Jesus gets right to the matter. And he says, you know what? I, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed. It's, that wasn't even enough for you. You are not looking for me because of the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You aren't looking for a Messiah. You're looking for a meal. You missed the point of the sign. The sign wasn't the point. The person doing the sign was the point. And he leans into that crowd, and I'm telling you today, across the centuries, across the millennia, he is leaning into you and me today, and hopefully you feel like he's talking to you today. And he says to these men and women, do not work for, do not live for, do not strive for, or focus on food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. That's a pretty pointed statement. But what do they do? Look at what they respond. So they ask him, well, what sign then will you give them that we may see and believe you? Water into wine. Healing of a man's son long distance. Paralytic for 38 years walking. And now 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people have just been fed out of nothing. What sign will you give us? They don't get it. 
what sign will you? You know, our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses. It's not a man. It's not the leader that you should be putting your faith in. It's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's pretty awesome. And yet they still don't get it. Because their response, sir, always give us this bread. I mean, it's, they're fixated. They're fixated on the food. They're fixated on what they can get. They keep hearing, they're, they're, he's talking over their head and they're just, lunch, 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 lunch. He's talking life. And they're thinking lunch. Because they always give us this bread. Don't let it stop. Keep it coming. And then Jesus declared, get this, focus on this, watch this. He declared, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. You may walk away, but he will not drive you away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. One of the most glorious, power-packed, defining statements in all of human history. The secret to life, eternal life, embodied in one person. Here I am. With me, you'll always be satisfied. It may not be easy, but as we said, if you focus on him, you get through the things that you're facing right now. The one who the people have been expecting their whole life. They've been waiting for a Messiah. They've been calling for a Messiah. They've been praying for a Messiah. And here he shows up and look at their response. Once he says, it's not about what you get. I'm not here to give you what you get. I'm here, you, I'm here to offer you me. I've shown you the signs. I've done the miracles. And, he, and here's their response. At this, the Jews began to grumble at him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Oh, man. You? We get you? Really? And what did they do? They demoted him. He went from prophet to just another guy on the street. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can you now say, I came from heaven? They were ready to crown him king, and now they're ready to give him the boot. Because he would not do what they wanted him to do. So as we get ready to close today, how would you do on this final exam? How would you do on this midterm exam? See, it's not enough to simply quote the facts. It's not simply enough to say that you know about Jesus. There's plenty of, these people had plenty of, of information to know about Jesus. Many of these people in this story had firsthand, firsthand eyewitness experience with the facts and other miracles. We've simply been given three or four right now. But it's clear that he did many other things. And yet simply knowing about what happened did not affect knowing who made it happen. I want you to think about this. I just want you to think about this long and hard for a moment. These people are standing at a moment of eternal history. The one they've been waiting for their whole life. The one that's been prophesied and taught about and promised for generation after generation is now standing in their midst. And they've seen a lot of evidence. And they don't believe. 
maybe some of them had an excuse. Maybe some of them were really analytical, and I didn't see it. My auntie is telling me about it, but she's given to exaggeration, so maybe it's not as true as maybe they make out. But the fact is, you and I don't have that excuse. You see, we have the blessing of 2,000 years of corroborating evidence. We know the rest of the story. We're just in John 6. You're going to fast forward several chapters. This man, who did no wrong, who did no evil, was tempted in every way that we are tempted, but without sin. He allowed himself to be made sin, to be crucified as a ransom for you. You see, he didn't do anything wrong. We did it wrong. It says we were unable to, to make peace with God. We were deserving the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves. And yet God stepped out of heaven. He came to earth. He said, here I am. And not only was he going to do something for us, but he offered himself to us. The question is not when we come to Jesus, what do I get out of it? That's not the question. The question of first importance, the one that, honestly, if you believe what the scriptures say, at the end of the age, every single one of us is going to stand before God. And the question he's going to ask is, who do you say that I am? The great theologian C.S. Lewis said, he's either a liar or a lunatic or he's Lord. He hasn't given you any other options. He's either one of those three. Who do you say that he is? Maybe you think you have a relationship with Jesus, but it's pretty, it's pretty transactional. And I just challenge you today, you never have an authentic relationship with someone if it's simply based on what you get from them. So I'm here to tell you today, challenge you today, that you can course correct today. You see, this is just the good news about a midterm exam is that you learn what you don't know. You learn what you haven't mastered and you're given time to prepare for the final exam. Isn't that a blessing? Maybe you came in today wondering what you could get from Jesus. Now you're coming face to face with who Jesus is. Maybe you can start your daily 20 with reading John chapter six. Maybe you can spend your daily 20 prayer time praying a prayer like this, using Jesus' very words, paraphrasing saying, Heavenly Father, not my will today. My will comes with a grocery list. My will comes with a lot of things I want. But Heavenly Father, I'm reminded today it's not my will, but your will that should be done. Will you just help me follow? And in light of Calvary, in light of the cross, in light of the grave, in light of everything that Jesus has done, I have every reason and to follow you and no excuse not to. God has already given you everything you want and need from him because he's given you him. John said it, look, I'm telling you all of this so that you may believe and that you would have life in his name. And so today with your eyes, maybe you close your eyes for a moment. And if I tried to give you this exam and I said, who do you say that he is? Could you honestly 
based on the facts, answer correctly. Today you get to change course. Today you get to change your focus. And the beauty of changing your focus and recognizing who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of God, God in the flesh, is that you will see everything you're dealing with in a different light. Philip, where can we buy food? Lord, I've seen you do so many miraculous things. I'm going to believe that you can do something today. Andrew, where can we buy food? Well, I have a little, but really, it won't matter. But wait a minute. Jesus, you're here. I've seen you do these things. I'm going to trust that you can do something here. When we change our focus, you see, everything changes. So Heavenly Father, I pray today, Holy Spirit, Pull back the veil of our eyes today. May we see you, Jesus. May we not rest on what we know about you. May it not be sufficient. May we not be caught off guard by these people that saw miracle after miracle and said, yeah, what, what can you do for me today? Oh, forgive us. In the light of everything we know, Jesus, may we change our focus. May we focus on you, Jesus, and have confidence that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or hope. Change our focus this week. Enter every circumstance and situation that we face. And we recognize that we know, we follow the Messiah, the Son of God, and that we have life in your name. We ask for your help in this, we pray. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you today as you choose to change your focus.